This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Homology Medicines is developing a range of genetic therapies based on a unique set of adeno-associated virus vectors derived from human hematopoietic stem cells that allow it to target a wide range of tissues. It's developing both gene therapies and gene editors simultaneously using these vectors. Its lead program is an experimental gene therapy for phenylketonuria, or PKU, a rare genetic metabolic condition that causes an enzyme deficiency that results in an inability to break down the amino acid phenylalanine, which is common in protein-containing foods. We spoke to Arthur Tsanabos, CEO of Homology Medicines, about the company's genetic therapies, its program in PKU, and how it pairs its vectors and approach to meet the needs of a given condition. Arthur, thanks for joining us. Very nice to be here, Danny. It's a pleasure. We're going to talk about homology medicines, its unique set of vectors for genetic therapies, and its pipeline. As you think about the challenges of gene therapies and gene editing therapies, what role does the vector play in in the ability to hit the tissue you need to hit? Well, it's, it plays a huge role. Uh, it's the delivery vehicle, if you will, that delivers the missing gene or, or DNA that, that a lot of these patients uh, with rare genetic disorders are missing or, or they're damaged. So it, it, it really is uh, all about the vector in this case in terms of uh, gene therapy and gene editing. Homology was formed around a unique set of AAV vectors can you explain where these vectors were founded and what makes them so unique? Yeah, they were founded in an academic lab. And what really drew me to um, you know, get the company uh, launched uh, was around this technology where these are vectors that were isolated from human stem cells. So they're essentially naturally occurring vectors um, that have lived with us as humans for uh, millions of years. So from an immune profiling point of view, they should have a safer profile. And I was really drawn to that as a, uh, as a trained immunologist, that, that profile really um, appealed to me because of the safety uh, that should accompany that. And in fact, that's what we've seen, at least in our first clinical trial uh, with patients with PKU. Well, how do these vectors compare to other AAV vectors? Do they provide any particular advantages? Right, so they are, they are uh, AAVs, so they have the same kind of packaging capacity of 4.7 kilobases. 
However, they're different uh, in terms of their amino acid uh, composition. So they belong, uh, these 15 different ones belong to the same family and it's called CLADA. Uh, but they have a, a real tropism uh, for different uh, tissues in the body, including the ability to cross the blood-brain barrier, for example. So they're really unique and we get to select the best one for a given disease. So that, that's what's really unique about this platform versus you, you have one vector and you're using it for a bunch of different diseases. And it also, these have the uh, ability to do uh, non-nuclease-based gene insertion or gene editing as well. You, you say they're, they're comparable in, in terms of payload, but within this group of vectors that you have, do they all carry the, the same size payload? Or yeah. do they vary in terms of what they can carry? No, uh, it's, it's approximately the same size payload across all AAVs. And you, you say these can target different tissue. Is there a way to enhance their ability to target a specific tissue? Or is this just done through experimentation to determine which vector is best for which tissue? Yeah, we've actually undertaken now, uh, going back a few years, uh, a large study to map out uh, and develop a library of where these 15 vectors go. And we've published that in peer-reviewed uh, journals. So we do have a very good idea where the naturally occurring vectors go so we can select the best vector for uh, a given disease. But in addition, what we've now started to do is to shuffle the amino acid sequences on coating the surface of these vectors to try to even fine tune that even more. And so that's also an exciting line of research that we're doing right now. From a manufacturing point of view, do they offer any advantages or pose any challenges that are different from any other AAV vector? Well, we find that these vectors um, are very suitable for the manufacturing uh, process that we have here. Um, and so that's been uh, a real plus because a lot of vectors you will find are difficult uh, to make and to make at scale. So that's, that was a, a very key milestone that we hit early in the company is the ability, uh, and we call it manufacturability, which is really important uh, if you're going to continue you know, making uh, drugs for patients with these uh, genetic disorders. You're pursuing both gene therapies and gene editing therapies. As you think about therapeutic strategies, what makes one approach better for a given indication than another? Yeah, it's really, I think, very simple is, is we'll take a gene therapy approach for a disease where you have a mature um, organ or tissue that you're trying to target. So for example, we have a program that's our lead program uh, for adult patients with PKU and your target tissue is the liver, the enzyme that's affected here is phenylalanine hydroxylase, which lives in liver cells. Uh, and so the adult liver pretty much is done turning over, it turns over somewhat, but in a slowly dividing tissue, a gene therapy is a great uh, approach. And conversely, if you're going after a tissue that turns over quite rapidly, like the pediatric liver, which turns over about 15 or 16 times by the age of 15, that's where you wanna go in with a gene editing approach and make that permanent insertion directly into the, into the chromosome. So that, that, that correction is passed down to the daughter cells of that, of that liver cell. So that's where we think we are very differentiated from a lot of our, our peers out there. 
Well, let's talk about that program. It's, it's your most advanced one. For listeners not familiar with phenylketonuria or PKU, what is it? How does it manifest itself and progress? Right. So this is a disease. It, it was one of the very first, if not the first uh, disease that came on the newborn screen panel. Actually, I believe in 1963. Uh, and you know, uh, as a parent walking out of the hospital, that your child has PKU. And that's quite, um, quite a, a really difficult moment for parents because there's not a lot that they can do other than to restrict protein intake because these, these kids, these babies, don't have the ability to convert phenylalanine, which is an amino acid, to another amino acid called tyrosine. And that inability really leads to um, the restriction right out of the gate of any kind of protein as part of the diet. And, and there's a lot of issues associated with that. And these kids suffer from um, you know, the loss of IQ points and eventually uh, the loss of executive um, function. And, and that's a very difficult lifelong journey uh, for these patients. What's it like to, to actually live with this condition? You know, my, my sense is it's long relied on the use of medicinal foods to, for, for patients with it. Yes, uh, we've been obviously very closely involved with the different patient organizations across the country and internationally. Um, and if you, you know, we often have uh, patients in their families visiting the company um, and, and talking about their experience. It's heartbreaking. They, uh, they do experience um, a lot of hardship. Uh, and you refer to medicinal food. Um, it's not just the fact that, you know, these foods uh, don't taste well uh, or good. We, we've, as a company, experienced that, um, but it's also the cost. Uh, it's surprisingly expensive and not covered by a lot of insurance uh, companies. So it, it is a huge cost uh, to families in terms of, you know, just monetarily, but also the burden it represents, you know, for the life of that child. There are some existing therapies. How well controlled is the condition with the existing therapies available today? Yeah, there's two out there uh, from Biomarin. One is Kudan, which really only helps to treat two to 8% of the population, the cofactor that helps boost the expression of that, that, that enzyme. The, and the other treatment that's newer, it's been out for a few years, is called Palenzeek. And it, it's actually not the enzyme you're missing. It's a plant-based enzyme that that chews up phenylalanine, but doesn't convert it to tyrosine, which is what you want, because that tyrosine is a precursor for all the neurotransmitters that you want to make. So that drug's been on the market a couple of years, very difficult to tolerate. It's a subcutaneous injection of three mils of gel every day and comes with a black box warning, and you need to carry an EpiPen because of the, the rate of uh, anaphylaxis. So it is a very very difficult treatment to take chronically, which is why we think a one and done gene therapy or gene editing approach is really the best uh, solution because you're, you're delivering something once and it's the actual human gene that you're missing. And so that's where we see a big advantage in this approach. And just for clarification, I think Palenzeek is a bacterial enzyme as opposed to a plant enzyme. Yeah, the early, uh, the early versions were plant-based, but you're uh, correct in that they switched over to a uh, bacterial-based uh, product. It's still non-human. What's known about your experimental gene therapy, HMI-102, from studies that have been done to date? 
Yeah, so it's the first ever gene therapy for PKU, and we've uh, gotten through the first part uh, of the trial, uh, which was a dose escalation. So it was a, a trial to try to pinpoint doses that we thought showed biologic activity that we could move forward into a larger phase two part of the trial. So we successfully uh, completed uh, the phase one uh, with six patients, and we found that the the middle dose and the high dose were, were biologically active and, and showed promise, which was really exciting. And, and importantly, as we talked about early on, had a very good safety profile uh, associated with it. So we are now doing that phase two part of the trial. Um, it's gonna be two doses, the mid and the high dose and a concurrent control. Um, and we are uh, actively enrolling that trial right now as we speak. And what's the endpoint for the study? The, uh, the endpoint for the phase one, two is, of course, always safety. Uh, so that's always your, your, your primary. Uh, and so, you know, from that point of view, we feel very good. Uh, you know, obviously looking at efficacy as we go along and, you know, part of the process in rare uh, disease drug development is to kind of optimize and fine tune as you go through your phase one, two into a pivotal trial, which is what we continue to do. And is it known what you'll use for the endpoint in the pivotal trial? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear that uh, phenylalanine reduction will be the, uh, the endpoint. It was the endpoint uh, for both of the biomarin trials uh, with Palenzeek as well as with QDAM. So that, that was one of the reasons, again, why we selected this disease, because it's a straightforward endpoint that's measurable in the serum of these patients. And... In terms of timetable, if all goes well, when, when might you complete the phase two and start the phase three? Yeah, so we're, uh, we're you know, <laughs> working actively to, to, to move that along. I would say uh, by the end of next year, uh, we should be through the phase two, um, if not onto the, onto the pivotal by then. So uh, we're, we're well on our way. It's interesting. You're also producing uh, or pursuing a gene editing therapy for this condition. How does that differ from your gene therapy and why the two approaches simultaneously? Is it the, the mature population versus the uh, pediatric population? Yeah, that's mainly the reason. Uh, it goes to the earlier point that, you know, we really felt like a gene editing approach in the pediatric population was the best way to get to these kids at a very young age so you could just stop the disease and its tracks and, and prevent the loss of those IQ points in executive function for these kids. So we feel like that's the best long-term solution and why we pursued both at the, uh, at the same time, though um, the, the uh, editing program is now, uh, um, you know, it's always been behind the gene therapy program by a few years, but we plan to start that trial by the end of this year. So that's actually progressed uh, very nicely for a newer technology. Are you using the same vector in both cases? We are actually, and, and that was by design so that we had an understanding in the first trial, the gene therapy trial of the immune response. And, uh, and so we don't have to kind of relearn for the gene editing approach. At the same time, does that give you any regulatory advantage in terms of the preclinical work you've done? Uh, it does, it does, um, but there's also additional preclinical work we've had to do uh, for the gene editing approach. Of course, when you're inserting into the genome, uh, you need to make sure about your off-target uh, insertion rate 
So those are all studies that we have done, completed, and uh, reviewing with FDA uh, right now, actually. You're also pursuing gene therapies for MPS2 and metachromatic leukodystrophy. I, I wanted to touch, though, on a, another program, one you have in proxismal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, because it represents a different approach from your other programs. What is PNH and, and how is that treated today? Yeah, so PNH is a, is a hemoglobinopathy disease where you, you have hemolysis due to uh, overactive complement. And the, uh, the current treatment for these patients out there is an antibody to C5. Um, the original antibody uh, is called Solaris and it's, it was made by Alexion. Um, and then a kind of longer acting uh, version of that Ultimaris is out there now uh, for patients, but you still have a significant rate of breakthrough hemolysis in these patients. So essentially, you know, it's a well-trodden development path where if you had enough anti-C5 to, to block that, um, and that's complement factor five, uh, then you have a drug that you should uh, see activity with. So our approach was to do a gene therapy encoding for a full-length antibody to C5 so that it's on all the time and reaches the peak uh, levels of anti-C5 that you see with uh, Solaris or Ultimaris. And of course, those are chronic therapies. So as you dose them, they're active for a while and then they drop down. And then you have to dose again a few months later and then you go up and you go down. So we will see now a consistent uh, response in terms of antibody production and the ability to really, I think, have a more robust uh, response than you see with a chronic uh, administered antibody. So what is HMI 104? Are you actually encoding uh, a, a gene to produce the antibody that's needed? Yeah, it's, it's really unique in that it's, it's one of the few programs around where there's a single vector that can encode the cDNA for the entire full-length IgG antibody that is specific for C5. Um, and so that really, uh, I think... Um, it, is a, it was a huge uh, finding on our part and pretty unique in the field. And does this just have to get into the nucleus of the cell? Does it have to somehow integrate with the genome? Now, interestingly, uh, it does not. So it's a gene therapy. And you know, because these vectors go very well to the liver, it turns out that the liver is a great producer of antibodies. So hepatocytes are really good antibody producing cells. So if you transduce the, the hepatocyte uh, with the gene therapy, HMI-104, you make a lot of antibody that gets secreted into the serum of uh, at least preclinically of the animals that we tested. And once it's delivered, is there any way to modulate the activity? Yeah, there are a number of ways that you can modulate that. We're working on that. There's on-off switches and ways to slow down production if you need to. Um, but you know, one of the reasons we picked PNH and, and C5 is there's a well-trodden safety record of the ability to knock that almost down to zero with antibodies chronically delivered. So we don't think that you know safety should be an issue if you have something that's on uh, all the time. And what's the timing for that as well as getting that into the clinic? Right, so we had guided at the beginning of the year that we would have a clinical development candidate named um, by the second half of the year. In fact, we, we, we hit that earlier. So we named that at the end of uh, the second quarter, and that is moving now into all the toxicology 
uh, studies that will uh, feed into the uh, IND for submission. And usually from the time of naming a clinical development candidate, it's about 12 to 18 months to get to a submitted IND. So um, that's the timing. Arthur Sanibus, President and CEO of Homology Medicines. Arthur, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you, Danny. Yeah, much appreciated. It's always great to talk to you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.